0: We're a point in uh, time in our country where I think we have to realize that in order to have a dialogue that really brings social justice to our country, we're gonna have to learn how to have discussions uh, about race.
1: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Tricia Johnson. Jeff Rakes is a former senior staffer at Microsoft. Now he runs the Rakes Foundation, which works to build equitable learning environments and end homelessness. As a self-professed, privileged white man, he says the challenge of inequality in America can only be overcome if people start talking about race. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Rakes grew up on a farm in a small Nebraska town and eventually left to attend Stanford. He jokes he's the beneficiary of the most significant affirmative action program in the world, born to college-educated parents in the United States, with white skin color, plus he's a man and heterosexual. I mean,
0: I was on the up escalator.
1: Later in college, he realized just how privileged he was, saying, quote, privilege is invisible to those who possess it. He says the playing field is unequal in terms of who benefits from opportunity, and that has to change. Colorblindness used to be considered a virtue. Talking about race was thought to be impolite. But in truth, colorblindness can be an insidious form of racial oppression. Think about it. How has colorblindness affected social policy in America? How is inequality detrimental to democracy? Jeff Rakes sits down with Ford Foundation President Darren Walker and journalist Michelle Norris for a discussion about race. Norris runs The Bridge at the Aspen Institute, a program focused on race, identity, and inclusion. Here's Norris.
2: And We're going to talk about a word that carries a lot of weight, and it means different things to different people. And it's time that we start talking about this particular word, because it can, in some ways, prevent things from happening. Some people feel it can open new doors. But... It's something that we need to examine with our eyes open. I'm talking about the word colorblind. Mm -hmm. Now I bet, how many people do we think are in this room? I'm guessing maybe 150? That's what I said. Okay. (laughs) So there may be in this room of 140 people, 139 interpretations of what it means to be colorblind. And we're going to talk about colorblindness in action, and we're also going to talk about a few other concepts Um, of being colorblind, color-aware, and color-brave, and what all that means. And as we talk about this, every so often we're going to stop down, and I'm going to ask them to define certain terms because language is important, and we're going to create um, perhaps a Rubicon for language, a vernacular, and a syllabus for us to think about this one word in lots of different ways so you can take this outside of the room. Darren Walker runs the Ford Foundation. Jeff Rakes runs the Rakes Foundation. You both have a long career that takes you through the corporate world, through the Rockefeller Foundation, through USB, through the Gates Foundation and Microsoft. And so you've had many ways to think about this and to experience this. I want you to each, as we began, talk a little bit, Darren, first, about the word colorblind and as you think about it and what, how you see it in practice
3: in the spaces where you do your work. Thank you, Michelle. It's so great to be here, and so great to have a full room. Um, so oh, An overflow room, in fact. And so, colorblind. I think it's really important to contextualize uh, this word because I think while we may be here to offer a critique of the term colorblind, I think we have to understand how we got to this term. We got to this term because, actually, of a noble aspiration. And acknowledgement that we weren't a colorblind society that in fact we reached a point in America certainly by the 1960s where we realized that actually we were a quite color conscious country and that our culture our systems our structures reflected that and therefore the notion of being colorblind was in fact something that dr. King said in his great I have a dream speech so so whites who sought a colorblind society were actually seeking a very noble idea of America. And, and so while we are here 50 years later and offering a critique that actually colorblind is, is no longer sufficient as a national aspiration, we have to contextualize that it was in fact something very positive and something very aspirational, and something very much about reconciliation that whites and African Americans who advanced this construct of colorblindness were seeking. But where we are today, I think, is with a deeper, more sophisticated, and nuanced understanding that these structures can't be addressed by simply clicking on a, a switch and saying, okay, we now are colorblind. Because in fact, being, being um, colorblind in some ways concretizes those systems and structures mm-hmm. and policies that were built on race. And, and so we have to acknowledge uh, that if we actually want a society where there is opportunity, and there may it may sound ironic, we actually need to recognize those differences. Jeff,
0: well, I, I agree strongly with with Darren, and I, I might be a little bit more pointed. I would basically say that we're a point in uh, time in our country where I think we have to realize that in order to have a dialogue that really brings social justice to our country, we're gonna to have to learn how to have discussions uh, about race, and this notion of color blindness at this point in time, I'll say, is actually a flaw. It is a misconceived, misunderstood notion that actually helps to perpetuate challenges that we're not taking on. I like to use the phrase, that privilege is invisible to those who possess it. And...
2: Now say that again.
0: Privilege is largely invis- is, is invisible to those who possess it. And you know that was part of my own evolution, which we, we talked about earlier, is recognizing the aspects of my own privilege, how that plays out in society. And I think one of the challenges we have to take on, and we have to figure out how to take it directly head on, is the, the challenge of being able to talk about race and how, as Darren pointed out in our society, that's actually led to um, a perpetuation of inequitable access to opportunities.
2: You talk about the journey Mm -hmm. that you went on. Could you talk a little bit more about that, how you came to view this, how you decided to use your voice to take on this issue, how you've decided to cast a lunge introspectively in Mm -hmm. your company to ask people to really think about their own views um, and some of the tools that you use to to help people understand where they are on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. you know, from um, defensiveness to
0: adaptability. Mm -hmm. Well, I I used to joke about having gotten into Stanford University. I grew up on a a farm near a small community in Nebraska, and I used to joke that I got into Stanford on the Farm Boy Affirmative Action Program. (laughs) And, you know, actually, as I've gone through this journey, what I've recognized is that I am the beneficiary of the most significant affirmative action program in the history of the world. It's called the history of the world. (laughs) I was born white. I was born male. I was born in the United States. I was born heterosexual. I was born to parents who were a farm family, but both college educated. Uh, I mean, I was on the up escalator. And, um, you know, it was in part being, you know, going, you know, and then I had this, this great experience because you know, the town where I went to high school was only 2000 people. And as I joke with my wife who grew up Catholic, the only minorities in our town were Catholics. And uh, so I go off to Stanford University where most non uh, Stanford, non California Stanford students have a California roommate, my roommate grew up 35 miles away. He was from Omaha, Nebraska, which <laughs> is really strange. There's only like five kids from Nebraska that go to Stanford each year. And so here I am with, with Kenneth Nunn, African-American from central Omaha. We are 35 minutes apart. We grew up in two completely different worlds. And I give Kenneth a huge amount of credit of really opening my eyes to what I now describe as that phrase, You know, privilege is invisible to those who possess it. Because while I grew up in what I thought was a progressive, and they were a progressive family, but it was progressive in the sense of developing that sense of, of colorblindness, so that that was a value, that we honored the capability of all people regardless of, mm-hmm. of, of race. But you know, I recognized that the environment that I grew in, you know, in you know, was a very homogenous environment and I did not have that sense of, a privilege until I really, really met Kenneth. And Kenneth got me connected very closely to the the black community at Stanford. I was uh, part of the apartheid protests, which opened my eyes to social issues of social justice. Uh, and you justice. lived in the Emoja house. Pardon me? Did yeah, you? I, I, I lived in Ujamaa. Ujama. Excuse me, let me get that right. Yeah, there's somebody here knows, <laughs> yeah, Nicole. Uh, I lived in Ujamaa, the Black Cultural Theme Center, and I was a staff person. Uh, my senior year and that was uh, another part of the journey where you know white students would live in the black cultural theme center and they'd say oh, well now I'm the minority that is a really inaccurate view of the world you know it, it, it is an indication of the challenge we have where people have to understand the minute those white students walk out of Ujima, you know they're back in the world of the dominant you know power structure and so it was very you know, it was an interesting part of my evolution at Stanford to learn how to have that kind of dialogue with those, those students. And so, you know, one of the great, uh, you know, another part of the, the lottery for me, I, you know, I won the Ovarian lottery. I, I won the, the Microsoft lottery. Uh, and, you know, uh, being at Stanford and meeting Kenneth was an important part of my luck.
2: Well, it's interesting because for many people, college, is the most diverse experience that you will have. There's a lot of cross-pollination that happens in a college campus. Sometimes it happens because you have a roommate, you live together, ostensibly you attend class together, you eat together, but then when you enter the workspace, um, your the world becomes, even if you believe in in diversity and inclusion and, and, and that people should live and, and cross-pollinate, your world often becomes smaller. Those concentric circles get smaller and smaller, and when you enter the workplace, even if you believe in the notion of diversity and inclusion and you maybe want to challenge the notion of colorblindness, there is a real disincentive to using your voice in the workplace. Can you talk a little bit about that, Darren, and about um, both the benefits and the perils and why some people choose not to use their voice to take some of these issues on?
3: Well, I think for... uh, I'm obviously not a white man, a white straight man, but what I would say is that for it is not a perceived peril for white men to engage in this it is a real peril Mm -hmm. many white men's careers have come to an end because they said the wrong thing were misinterpreted were misunderstood or maybe they were understood for what they meant and so we meaning people of color queer people people who are different in many ways have to create a safe space so that everybody can feel safe. Because we need more guys like Jeff who want to get on the journey, but being on the journey comes with risk. Yeah. And so it's one of the reasons why I was so pleased to, when Jeff asked me to do this, because it, we have to have successful white men say what he says. And until that happens, I mean, my fantasy is like, you know, four guys in a golf cart at like Dallas Country Club talking about this issue. Okay? No, I mean, no. But I mean, literally, that—that that for me is going to be we're done, right? I mean, I mean, I, I I want them to be saying, "Are you woke? Are you woke? Are you?" I mean, right now,
2: really. And if someone isn't
3: woke, woke, wake up. I mean, wake up. You need to wake up. And so. We need to get there, but to get there, it's really hard because, because we have a narrative. I mean, you know, Jeff and Trish are to such humble people, but there are a lot of successful men in this country who, who reject the idea that our nation isn't a meritocracy because their success requires them. I mean, to say, I'm a billionaire, and I'm a billionaire in part because our system is rigged so guys like me can be billionaires is a really un-American sort of things to say, write I mean, And so, so we have this narrative that is a very different narrative where, where people don't say I won the lottery, they say I worked hard, My, I started with nothing. I mean, the, the, the degree to which I see successful white men falling over each other to tell their stories of humble Horatio Alger is amazing to me. I mean, I know people who grew up, like, you know, really well off, who, like, tell these stories of, of starting with nothing. And, and, and it's because it's because our culture validates that. Because as Americans, we want to believe that you can get on that mobility escalator and ride it as far as you want, but that no one rides it faster than anyone else. And and so to to successful people, to interrogate their success requires that they acknowledge the injustice that is baked in to our systems. And that's really, really hard to do because we're patriots, we believe in our country. We believe that there is something really special about America that makes it possible for people like me and Jeff and you to be where we are today, which couldn't happen in any other country. But the reality is that for many people they are from the get-go, not even able to even get on the escalator. And we need to, we need to acknowledge that and name that and when we do that, then America can be America.
1: It's Aspen Ideas to Go. On the show today, philanthropists Darren Walker and Jeff Rakes talk about race, privilege, and inequality in America. This Black History Month, take a journey through the last 50 years of African American history. Our episode, What Would MLK Say About Today's America?, features filmmaker and professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. speaking with Aspen Institute President Walter Isaacson.
3: What would you tell Martin Luther King if he came back? And he'd say, Walter, what's happened since I've been gone? Mm -hmm. And you'd say, hey, Dr. King, you're looking good, you know, it's nice to see you again. (laughs) A lot of stuff has happened is going to blow your mind.
1: Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on your favorite podcast player. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, be sure to review the show. Now, back to our feature discussion. Here's Jeff Rakes.
0: Part of what we have to do is we have to figure out how to talk about these values in ways that bring people along. And so what Darren has highlighted here is that there is an important value in our country that I think is a part of our fabric, this notion of meritocracy, this notion that you know, sort of that, you know, pull yourself up your, by your bootstrap type of thing. Somehow we have to be able to still honor that while we also talk about the importance of community and the, and the broader support and structures that we live within. And I think sometimes what happens is we get so narrowly focused in on that idea of individual meritocracy, we forget the environment, the community that we live in, and we don't give enough credit to to that and the more that we could start to shift the dialogue to be more inclusive of that comprehensive framework i think the more hope i'll have that we'll start to take on some of the issues that darren was
3: talking and when you i think when you when we were talking about this a a few weeks ago the 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 issue that is hardest to acknowledge uh, because it really it, it, it 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 i think um it is so antithetical to our narrative of who we are is the reality that our, we live in a country that is an amazing, glorious place that there is no other country like it in the world. But it was constructed on a racialized hierarchy and we continue to live with the remnants of that. And we, and, and and we the, don't
2: always acknowledge the roots of that. No, we, don't. we We are the land of, you know, this is one of the things that Clarence and I were talking about, we are the land of the, the, the brave and the home of amnesia. Yes, that's <laughs> no, true.
4: And it's really, but it's,
3: but, in, but of course, you know, every family has a narrative. And we want our narratives to be romantic narratives. You know, I mean, my mother like talks about this uncle now who's dead and he is like a mythic figure. And I remember, he was like, you know, a really bad alcoholic who was like (laughs) really like, but she has conjured up a narrative that she is telling her grandchildren about him. And it's, that's what we do collectively as America, because we desperately need those narratives. Those narratives anchor a family, they anchor a society, but the, our narrative and, and, and the, the reality is that everything is a function of that racialized hierarchy and the impacts of that are not just on whites and blacks, but they're on blacks and blacks, right? right. right? Hmm. I mean, so you and I know about the brown paper bag yeah. test, right? Yeah. Now the brown paper bag test wasn't created by white people, it was created by black people to discriminate against each other based because we bought into this racialized hierarchical system. And so we discriminated against each other so that, and so some of us like you and me with light skin were given privilege and dark skinned people like Justice Thomas weren't and the bitterness that you see from some people who are very dark skinned about the fact that they haven't been given opportunity while light skinned blacks like you and me have in this larger racialized system is very profound and it remains in our culture today.
2: So you're you're taking us into the kitchen table right here because this is the stuff that is the deep stuff. And in order to really understand a a, a system that is based on a racialized hierarchy you have to be able to really do some deep vein work. And to understand that, you have to have courage, you have to have will to stay at the table when things get difficult, and you have to figure out how to pull people along in a conversation that you know is going to create both vertigo and indigestion and not necessarily in that order. And so, um, Jeff, you have done some of this work, and I want you to share some of the tools that you use um, to to create a space within the Rakes Foundation mm-hmm. Um, to allow people to talk about this, to learn hard truths about themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and I understand that when people would take some of the tests that they took, they'd pull away from the table and say that that couldn't possibly be me. How is sure. it that I, ha- I yeah. harbor these attitudes? Yeah. Um, and how you allow them to, to deal with that individually and then as an organization.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I like to say that philanthropy is a journey. You know, what you, you know, your heart is drawn to issues, and then you hope what you do is you pair your mind with your heart so that you get greater impact. Uh, And, you know, we would say that about, Trisha and I would say that about our philanthropy in general, where we ended up on youth homelessness and and expanded learning, the quality of expanded learning and the science of learning and development. But along the way, we started to get more and more aware uh, of a gap in our thinking in those areas. And in particular, you, you have this aspiration, you want all kids, to have the opportunities. We, part of how we got started on science of learning and development was our oldest daughter really got bullied in middle school, hmm. and that creates a sense of of lack of belonging that really undermines academic performance. We now know from the science of learning development that we can specifically articulate uh, that. So we got we got onto that that track and we realized, gosh, if we as parents really couldn't, you know, it's like we have means, we're privileged, we can support these kids. How does the rest of the world handle this? So that's how we got, you know, in that direction. Along the way, we realized that 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 notion that we wanted to serve all kids was probably preventing us from succeeding.
2: Now that's counterintuitive. It is, it's
0: totally counterintuitive because you have this universal value And then what ends up happening is you think, okay, well then the key thing is to make sure that everybody has equal opportunity to succeed. But in reality, given how our society is structured, you have to recognize that there is dramatic inequity in terms of the opportunity. And that led us to to the work of John Powell and targeted universalism, which is now fundamental to our work at the the Rakes Foundation. So this is
2: one of the areas where I'm gonna stop you down from the syllabus. I need you to explain targeted
0: universalism. Yeah, so targeted universalism basically is a strategy or an approach suggested by John Powell at the University of California, Berkeley, that says that the way to address these inequities in societies, you have to specifically target uh, populations that are marginalized or underserved. And that in the process of doing that, You will then create a more equitable society and i'll add on to that that i think there are emergent properties that will probably improve the overall educational system so let me let me just take a moment and explain so let's say for example uh you know a universal strategy would to say well okay let's we've got these school systems that are designed to support you know our kids and we're going to set common core standards which I actually think is a good thing uh, to have high-quality standards. But you then don't recognize that actually some of the kids that are in the school system don't have the support necessary to achieve that that level of academic performance. So targeted universalism would say what you do is you understand what their their situation is, which is very different than, say, a white middle-class kid like me, and you figure out how to use your resources to help those, those kids. So, so you don't
2: bring the standard down to meet those students who are um, at a level where they don't have the resources or the, the early childhood education. You maintain the standard, but you give those kids what they need exactly, to exactly. reach that goal. And I think
0: you know, in, in terms of the emergent property benefit, I think what will happen is we'll actually learn how to move away from a 19th century design of our public school system to a 21st century design that actually has more personalized education. Uh, And I think that would be a real step forward that will benefit all kids. But we'll get there because we're gonna focus in on, on, on kids that aren't getting the support that they need and figure out how to do that. Let me give you one very concrete example. We created what's called the Building Equitable Learning Environment Network. It's the Bell Network. And these are uh, school support organizations that are trying to help uh, schools perform better for marginalized students. So one of the questions we ask each of those student uh, uh, school support organizations is, who are you trying to support? Who are the marginalized uh, populations within these schools that you're trying to support? So we call them out. We say you have to articulate that as part of this. One of those organizations is Equal Opportunity School. What they identified is that kids of color and low income background get discriminated against in terms of access to AP classes in international baccalaureate. So they have created a whole system about how to get these high schools to identify these kids and get them into those AP classes. And so they go after the kids of color and low income background and get them into AP classes so that they have that as, a, uh, as an opportunity to improve their educational outcomes. That is an example of targeted universalism.
2: Now, Darren, you asked, you talked about contextualizing this. So if you're talking about adopting a strategy of targeted universalism in this moment, where there were a lot of Americans who who feel that resources are heading toward those who perhaps are undeserving or have cut a line or feel like the world is moving past them, um, that can sometimes be a tough sell in a political environment. Um, I can make the argument for doing that, but I can also understand that there are those who would be reticent to make that argument for fear of angering a constituency that feels like they are being left behind in an economy where resources are going toward a constituency that doesn't look like them.
3: Well, I think, you know, the good work that Rakes has done builds on, I mean, John John Powell is a brilliant uh, social scientist. I mean, but um, this is not a new idea. I mean, you know, targeted yeah, universalism. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the context, the reality yeah. is, and the political reality is, it causes white backlash, mm. right? I mean, so, and we know that. And so the question is, and it, and it caused it in the 60s, it caused it in the 70s, right? And so now, during a period where there is far greater inequality than there was in the past, Introducing uh, such an idea, I think, is desperately needed. It's courageous and it's bold. And it's very risky because we, for the first time in this country, have something that I actually do not think uh, our democracy has enough elasticity to absorb. And that is a generation of downwardly mobile white people. democracy called America has been able to absorb intergenerational poor black people, but it does not have the elasticity to have millions of downwardly mobile white people with lower expectations for their children than they have for themselves. And so the reality is introducing into that context constructs like Targeted universalism, which we all know works. And we all know, I mean, when people say our schools are failing, that's, that's not totally true. We have a lot of really good schools in this country that are doing very well. Education experts know the schools that are failing, the dropout factories, are schools that are primarily populated by black and Latino students. And the the most vulnerable and marginalized are black boys. So if you disaggregated student achievement in this country and you took out black boys, the level of achievement rises significantly in the aggregate. And so why wouldn't we have a targeted program that says we've got to focus on black boys? because something is happening to this population in this country. We know the context though would not politically, the politics of doing something like that in this environment when there are clearly so many angry, anguished white people who feel that their prospects for prosperity and that mobility escalator have been significantly diminished. And so it's it's why though this challenge of inequality has to be faced head on. And why we have to talk about that because the intersection of inequality and race and our economy and our politics is what's brought us to this point in this country. And so I believe one of the reasons why we focus so much on inequality at Ford is because ultimately it is detrimental to our democracy. Because a democracy like the United States depends on the notions of hope and opportunity. And the greatest threat to the American democracy is not a pandemic or terrorism, it's hopelessness. Because hopelessness will drive, hopelessness will drive a people to do dangerous crazy, irrational things that make no sense to people like us who have privilege and who are very hopeful. We're all very hopeful. We're hopeful because we don't have the problems that most Americans have. Right? I mean, I don't worry about the things that my mother I mean, worried about. You know? I mean, the lights aren't going to be turned off if I don't cash my check in time to pay the light bill on Friday. I mean, these are the things that most Americans worry about. And for those of us who live in our privileged, wonderful environs, this is all like, I mean, it's like craziness, right? I mean, we don't understand it. We're perplexed and confounded by it. But actually, it shouldn't come as a surprise.
1: Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Journalist Michelle Norris is the moderator of today's conversation. She runs The Bridge at the Aspen Institute, a program focused on race, identity, and inclusion. Through it, Norris says she wants to break down barriers that keep people from talking about hard things, like politics and race.
2: We hope that through the success of this program that the Aspen Institute is seen as a place where people are willing to have difficult conversations.
1: Find out more about The Bridge at aspeninstitute.org thebridge the bridge. There's also a link in our show notes. Back to our featured conversation, here's Michelle Norris.
2: So you said something interesting, Darren. You said that it's important that Jeff Rakes uses his voice because he is a straight white male. Absolutely. I want you to explain why that's important, and then, Jeff, I want you to respond by explaining how you have accepted that because you've told me that you have accepted that Mm -hmm. and, and how you have decided to use that platform and your accepted privilege to talk about these issues. So Darren, you yeah, first. Well, because I think, I
3: think um, you know, Jeff is far more credible on this issue than I, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think there, I, I would like to think that you know, other white men, when they hear me talk about race, well, but I think hearing it from Jeff is far more credible because it's from a peer and it's from someone who is on their journey. I mean, I'm on a different journey than, than a white CEO. Right? And so I just think the fact that Jeff has had the courage to name and frame, surface, this issue in such a profound way and be public about it, moves the dial. I mean, when Steve Case talks about, I mean, as a businessman, when he says, access to capital, I'm an entrepreneur, I understand access to capital, and I am telling you that access to capital for minority entrepreneurs is not what it is for white entrepreneurs. I mean, and so when a successful white entrepreneur says that, it is far more, uh, I think, impactful than my saying. Than the
2: person who's knocking at the door saying, give me capital, because that voice is less likely to be heard. So you've accepted this, the privilege and the platform. Talk a little bit about how you use it and how you intend to use it.
0: Well, first of all, the motivation is, is that we aspire to have real impact with our philanthropy. And we think that, and a lot of that has to do with uh both Trisha and my sense of social social justice. And so we feel like if we don't actually dive in on these issues, we won't achieve that aspiration of having great impact with the, our philanthropy. On the other hand, it's it's you know it's challenging because you know I'm in a lot of settings where you know I feel a certain vulnerability. Darren sort of alluded this to this earlier. When you're in a corporate environment, and you you know you start to talk about race, you know what's that going to do to your career, you know? And I think it can work both in the way Darren described, and I also think it can work in the way that if you do speak up, then people say, oh, I you know I don't really know if I want that guy on the team because I you know I'm not, I we're colorblind. I don't you know that that guy's making that issue front and center, and that's not really right because we're colorblind. And so, you know, you get into these these you know the you know I struggle with with how to how to take this on? In fact, at our our foundation as a whole, you know, we're on a, a journey where uh, we've gone through diversity, equity, inclusion training, and we're now in a phase where we've uh, done both an organization and individual. I, I. DIs, Intercultural Development Inventories, where we...
2: So this is, this is for the syllabus again. Totally you should uh, just welcome quickly welcome. say yeah. that again so people yeah. understand. Yeah,
0: Intercultural Development in- Inventory, where effectively it's assessment of our perceptions about our awareness and understanding and behaviors in multicultural or intercultural settings versus kind of testing what is our reality. And with like you might expect, uh, each of us kind of think we're better than what we probably really are. And that is a quote unquote orientation gap. And, And I'll just, I'll be vulnerable here. I, you know, I do too have an orientation gap and I know that it's described as minimization. What does that mean? It's very common in our society when you get into the discussion of race. You, want, you try and minimize the issue by talking about universal values, talking about our similarities, because after all, we're all human beings, so on and so forth. And I know, given my family upbringing, I grew up somewhat conflict-averse, and so it's a weakness that I have that, you know, in a situation where there may be conflict, I want to try and minimize the conflict, and so I will tend to go to similarities, and I'll tend to go to... These universal values. And my coach, because I now have a coach on these issues, uh, basically, you know, said, you know, hey, you're doing okay, but here's what you got to think about. You know, in situations where the room is polarized, actually minimization or, or focus on universal values and similarities can be helpful because it can bring people together. The risk for me, the mistake that I will make, is that I won't take it to the next step because if you get people to start to have the dialogue, you got to have some uncom- You got to have some discomfort. You know these are not comfortable settings. And you know an example of this, I was talking to somebody who was a board member of a great uh, educational nonprofit, and he was really PO'd about a speaker that they had at the annual meeting. It was kind of you know power to the people you know, so on and so forth. And so I find myself in these situations where I wish I was better at how to bring that person along on why there were people in that audience who were really into that dialogue so that he was more aware of what the value that that, that, that conflict, that you know, discord actually could bring to the work of that nonprofit in terms I, I, of their education.
2: I so appreciate your sharing your vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. you know, because these are things that people struggle with. And it's not easy. I mean, the system of racial hierarchy is not something that happened like the weather or the, you know, the mountains behind us. It's a human construct. Mm-hmm. And it took a lot of time to construct that. And it will take some time and some effort and some real tools yeah. to deconstruct that.
0: Yeah. And I, I want to add on one other you know, discomfort I have or, uh, or issue, and it relates to what Darren was saying earlier, is when it comes to targeted universalism, you do have a mentality of it's a zero sum game on resources. And so I know that part of what I'm recommending is, is not equal school financing. I'm recommending articulating finance, you know, school funding in ways that are gonna help these kids who need more support and that is antithetical to people of my color in terms of the school resources. That's not going to be easy. I guarantee you, I don't know how to navigate that right now. Yet, I think it's important and so the Rakes Foundation has now gotten involved in funding an initiative related to school funding in our country, and whew, uh, <laughs> we'll see, it's a, it's a journey. <laughs>
2: We're going to bring the audience in in just a moment, but I want to um, speak to something that Darren said, just to use your anecdote and to stretch it just a little bit. Because if you're talking about diversity and inclusion and the notion of color blindness, if you are at an organization, you may feel that you are somewhat empowered just by having people of color in the room. You may feel like you are more muscular in this journey or in this effort because you have people of color at the table or in the room or in your organization, when in fact those individuals may not use their voice because of the real peril that you're talking about in speaking up as a person of color. You are seen as there goes that, you know, there she is bringing up race again. There she is talking about race under every rock. So the picture that you painted for us so beautifully of the four fellows, and maybe in this case, there's a couple sisters on the, on the cart too, um, uh, females on the cart too, of color, um, and they're going out golfing. And they probably are, if they're of color, talking about issues of race. Absolutely. Um, they, If they're talking about their lives, their children, their workplace, just playing golf, they probably are talking about that because that's the reality of their life. But when they walk into the workplace, they don't always use their voice in that way because of the very real peril associated with using your voice as a person of color. Could you talk a little bit about that?
3: Well, I mean, I think there's two sides to that, right? So there's, there's one where there are organizations that consider themselves progressive. And, I mean, so I'll use, I'll take the Ford Foundation. So, and again, since we're talking, in, in, well, I don't know if this is Chatham's house or whatever, it doesn't matter. The, the, so the Ford Foundation, we, we, we pride ourselves. We've got, well, I think we, because, and I said this to my board a couple of weeks ago, you know, there's a black queer man who's president of the Ford Foundation. So the staff and the HR, it's like, we're done. I mean, it's like, it's like, and I said, no, no, and I said to them, no, I said, I said this to, to, um, to, to my HR director, who will tell you, I I mean, I said this, I said, you know, we have gotten really lazy in recruiting since I've been president. And, I mean, and I use this example, which, okay, I'm so speaking out of scope, but whatever, that, that, you know, we, we used to have, when I came to Ford Foundation, there were five straight black program officers. There's not one left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They've been replaced by black women, white women. And so what happened? Like, are there no implorable black straight men at Foundation? I mean, what, what happened? What happened was we got... We just like, well, you know, Darren's country. president. So like, <laughs> you know, like we don't have to worry about that anymore. And I mean, my, the point is that even we progressives need to interrogate our practices because we get arrogant and we get really, really comfortable and smug in our superiority on these things. And we're just as guilty. The issue of how voice gets raised I mean, and I remember this from working at UBS, where there was, you know, there was a black, you know, and then now everywhere. I mean, there's blacks in Morgan Stanley. I mean, everywhere there. But back in the early '90s, there it wasn't that way. And and I think for all of us, we had to think very strategically about how to uh, to manifest uh, our our color, and it creates. Um, all kinds of do you join or do I not join? Because as Jeff said, you know, to become a managing director, you can't, like, be talking about race too much, right? Um, And then culturally, uh, when when the bank, you know, instituted Casual Fridays, (laughs) we didn't do Casual Fridays. (laughs) I mean, the black men didn't do Casual Fridays because you don't show up on Wall Street, like, dressed in jeans, and, you know, a T-shirt or whatever, and, like, black skin, and, like, say, I'm a vice president, I'm just going up to my office. Because, sorry, I mean, that, no, I mean, because people look at you like, you know, not in 1989, you're not a black vice president, like, wearing jeans on Casual Friday going up to your office. And so, so we knew, so amongst us, we knew that there were cultural norms that were racial, that were, that were on the face of the norm Totally objective, it's casual Friday. Put your khakis on, go to work. Well, no, no, it just couldn't work like that.
1: Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival, a 10-day event held in the Colorado Rocky Mountains in late June. Learn more about the 2018 festival and its sister conference, Spotlight Health, on our website, aspenideas.org. Now, here's the rest of today's conversation. Michelle Norris.
2: Let's bring the audience into this discussion. We have a question right here.
4: This is a, a probably a little bit difficult to answer, but one thing you didn't do is describe what color means. Um, and that was really um, something that was very prominent to me when the Whitney opened the biennial. Um, and I, I was chairman of the Whitney. and. Darren might have seen this, the New Yorker, or actually a couple of articles were written about it's the first time that the biennial had curators of color. Now the curators of color um, were, uh, one was, and they were fabulous, this is nothing about them, but one was a woman, both very young, um, whose mother was South Korean, or is South Korean, and father was white man born here. The other curator of color was um, Chris Liu, he was born in this country, I think his parents are Chinese but I'm not sure they are. So I called um, the director of the Whitney, who's a very close friend of mine, and I said, do we want to be saying this, um, that we now have two curators of color? And he said, we didn't say it, the press said it. And I said, well you know, I think there might be some backlash. Um, so that's the, the, the one question, if you could talk about that. You know, what, what is color? Um, and the other question is, you know, that's always, and Darren knows, we talk about it a lot, um, privilege when it comes to children. Um, my, I have two grown daughters, both with ad- advanced degrees, both with um, children, yet very young children. Um, they both have jobs, you know, big jobs but they've got nannies and they're here. I hope they're not in the room. And um, you know, I find myself rolling my eyes when they talk about how hard it is to work, Um, you know, and then they come home and the nannies take the kids and they work hard. And um, what's the final, and they don't wanna really see me rolling my eyes all the time, As. They tell me constantly. Um, so, what is that fine line with with children of privilege, which probably most of us have in the room, of not making them feel guilty, but also letting them know that, you know,
2: they had privilege.
4: They're probably not the only young people with a job, so <laughs> and some even we... have harder circumstances.
2: So, Darren, take on the, the first I question just of what is time. <laughs> no, no, that's, we're good. Um, if you could quickly take on the first one, what is color? Because the two people who were described yeah. are people of color.
3: They are. They are. And I think and they're brilliant curators. And that,
2: that Biennale
3: is among the best Biennales you've had in a long time. Uh, so I think, the, I think that the, so those, people of color is an expansive term. And we should embrace that. And, and celebrate that and and there are people of color curators. The challenge is, and this is the rub, is that often, so, so the, the great challenge for this country is our racial history and, and the particularities around the vestiges of slavery um, and the genocide of, of Native Americans, can't forget that. Yes. And, and, and what, what we see happening is is a, a tilt towards, away from those historical, seemingly intractable challenges around the, the, the status of, of, of people of African descent, for example, towards other people of color, immigrant populations, who, who for the most part came to this country as immigrants. And there, as we know, very different um, levels of achievement, shall we say, between uh, incumbent African-Americans and any person of color who is an immigrant, including African immigrants. And so, and so the, 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 the frustration that you get sometimes from African-Americans is, oh, Silicon Valley says that they have a huge number of people of color. Well, they're mostly South Asian. Right, I mean, they're, they're Indian immigrants and right, they're, not, they're not hiring black Americans in those jobs. And so the frustration and the, and the tension comes there. Um, you know, Lori, your children are privileged. You can't change that. I mean, the difference, I mean, I have five privileged goddaughters and I always say to their parents, there is a difference between being privileged and entitled. You can't cha- you can't pretend that your, your children are privileged, do you, you, you because you remind them of that privilege and the responsibility that comes with that privilege and the 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 very dark road that comes with entitlement uh, because that's I mean there is nothing uh, more insidious in a culture than entitlement. Mm -hmm. And we see it, and Jeff talks about the level of entitlement. Well, I won't say the person's name, but there was a a well-known, you know, sort of a couple of of well-known billionaire tech people who said, oh, you know, I just dropped out of school and I just decided I was gonna go and be an entrepreneur and you know, and I just thought, could you imagine like dropping the privilege of being able to say, I'm gonna drop out of school and I'm a junior at Harvard and I'm just gonna go be an entrepreneur. Because I know, I mean, you, you are so confident in your entitlement that you know you're gonna be successful, yes. even as a college dropout.
4: Or be, Or it doesn't right. matter,
3: or, or a degree for you doesn't, I mean, so could you imagine like me or you, like saying, calling my mom and saying, mom, I'm gonna like drop out of, cause I'm gonna be an entrepreneur and I've got this idea, you know, she would have like come to Austin, Texas and beat me <laughs> in front of like all my, I mean, there's just no way.
2: But part of it is what you're raising is
3: the fact that you're having this
2: conversation with your children is part of the, is, you know, parents can give the next generation the best reality check. You know, I know I get that, and my friends have heard me say this before. Uh, my parents were postal workers. Um, I sometimes, you know, the juggle is real, despite the fact that I have, you know, all kinds of privilege that with the job that I have. And, yes, having, you know, sitters who have helped raise my kids who are like, you know, Additional aunts and grandparents, but when I call my mother to you know talk about this, sometimes my mother will. I'll talk about how tired I am because I've worked and I've done this, and my mother will say, "Did Harriet get tired?" Mm-hmm. As in Tubman. <laughs> <I know. laughs> so you know, and that is okay. All right, I guess you know I'll just <laughs> do that extra load of laundry and read my background you briefing know, book tonight. That that you know, know. Get in our BMW you know. your and Think so. about Harriet all the way. <laughs> Oh, we have another question right over here.
0: Okay, I'll do the speed one. First of all, Jeff, I worked for you at the Gates Foundation, and this is amazing and slightly shocking. So, I, I, <laughs> uh, as long as we're being truthful, it's really, it's really powerful. I not um, surprised to take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's, it's really powerful, and I was so glad you guys brought John Powell into the room. So I wanted to ask about the other thing he talks about, which is othering. You know, he. <laughs> says the most important role a society can play is to create a sense of belonging um, and that their othering is sort of the the, the worst. Um, And we are at a heightened point of othering right now. And so will you just comment on how do we tackle that? How do we resist? Um, How do we think about this rise in xenophobia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, so I'm going to add to the syllabus mm-hmm. here. There's a book that I'd encourage all of you to read called Whistling Vivaldi. Yes, yes. As, it was written by Claude Steele, who's a fantastic uh, researcher, social psychologist. And it uh, relates a little bit to Laurie's question with um, identity. And what, what Claude's research shows is how society shapes a certain identity. Uh, might be gender, might be you know, uh, race, ethnicity, so on and so forth. And then the building on that, our society creates a certain set of stereotype threats. And a lot of what, what uh, Claude exposed was how stereotype threats impact uh, students' lives, especially academic performance. And so um, a very good, I'll use a gender example in this case. If you do a, a test of mathematical ability, and you tell girls that this is just a test of your mathematical capability, they'll perform at one level. Uh, if you tell them that it's a test of their mathematical ability as compared to male math students, they'll perform lower. Yeah. Or just even have a checkbox on gender. And what Claude's research showed is what's happening is stereotype threat is impacting the cognitive resources that are going to the academic uh, performance. And one of my favorite examples there is the Michigan State Athletic aptitude test, which was a concoction that Claude came up with to, to, to it's an experiment where uh, white males are told that this is a test of athletic ability. That's the control. And the other group, same, Capable white males are told it's a measure of their athletic ability as compared to African American males. And it's basically miniature golf. And the 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 control the treatment group performs lower. So it shows that even you know whites can have a certain stereotype threat. And I like to use that as an example because I think too often, as being a part of the privileged class, we do not understand these issues of identity and stereotype threat it's a long way of saying that one of the most important mindsets for kids to succeed is social belonging or academic belonging you have to believe that you belong in an academic environment so that your cognitive resources is going to your academic performance and when we have leadership in our country that is othering people on the basis of their color, on the basis of their immigration status, on the basis of their religion, we are creating stereotype threats that is undermining the performance of those students in our our country. And I think it's awful. And I think the academic research shows that it is a deficit for this country. So if we really wanna be America first or America great or whatever it is, we better figure out how to bring everybody up by not enhancing this sense of, of othering. I
2: wish we had more time, because we could have gone for, we could for another hour. Darren Walker and Jeff Rakes.
1: Darren Walker is president of the Ford Foundation, where he led the philanthropy committee that helped resolve Detroit's historic bankruptcy. Before Ford, he was president of the Rockefeller Foundation. Jeff Rakes co-founded the Rakes Foundation with his wife, Trisha. He's the former CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Michelle Norris is a Peabody award-winning journalist, founder of the Race Card Project, and executive director of The Bridge. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June of 2017. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Our show is produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.